Tegan, we got a lot of weird stuff to talk about today. We must be talking about politics again then, Chris, right? We've got kidney punches. We've got (laughs) OnlyFans accounts. And that's just the beginning of what is being called the least productive Congress since the Great Depression. So should we get productive if Congress can't themselves? Let's take them apart, Chris. Let's tell them what they're doing wrong. Let's get productive. Before we get productive, with Thanksgiving coming up, don't forget about the mailbag. We have a number of questions already in. Uh, We'll be getting to those with a special episode next week. But if you've got one, you know how to reach us, email Tegan or reply to one of my newsletters. Great questions are welcome. And now let's get to the Great Depression, or at least the least productive Congress since the Great Depression. With only 21 bills making it into law halfway into November, the 118th Congress, controlled by Republicans in the House and Democrats in the Senate, is on the most sluggish pace to make law since the Congress that met during 1931 and 1932, the HuffPost reports. Back then, Herbert Hoover was president, the Great Depression had started, and talking movies were still new. They also were called talking movies. I think today we just call them movies. So on the one hand, there's ridiculous silliness. The McCarthy elbowing of Tim Burchett, the straight punch to my kidney, as uh, Tim Burchett said, the George Santos ethics report, the idea that he might now actually get expelled from Congress. And, and we can talk or not about your and my feelings about that ethics report. And some of that stuff is sideshow material. But at the heart of it, in the center ring, in the main tent, Mr. Barnum, is the fact that legislation is just not getting passed. That's the ramifications of this. And we've seen this this week where Speaker Mike Johnson managed to get a short-term funding bill through after spending several weeks deciding what that was going to look like. And the majority of Republicans voted against that bill. It required more Democratic votes than Republican votes to get that passed. And you'll recall, Chris, that that was exactly what got Kevin McCarthy in trouble, was that he had to rely on more Democratic votes than Republican votes to pass a short-term spending bill. He found himself facing a motion to vacate from Matt Gates, and then he was out of a job. And Mike Johnson's been given a pass, at least so far. He's got this thing he calls a laddered approach, where he's essentially split up the 12 funding bills into two. And he's got four, which one piece of this funding lasts through mid-January, and the other piece expires in early February. And somehow he has convinced some people in his caucus, although clearly not enough, that this gives him additional leverage in his negotiations with Democrats. The only thing is that Democrats and other people who pay a lot of attention to Washington have no idea what he's doing and no idea why that supposedly gives him leverage. It just seems like he's setting up another mess because the basic fundamentals of his caucus have not changed. There is not a working majority within the Republican caucus. There's the moderate group of lawmakers on one side, and there's this extreme right led by the House Freedom Caucus, and they don't agree on any of these spending priorities. And unfortunately, almost none of them agree on the idea that you could work with Democrats and actually pass bills. The great irony of all of this is that there is actually probably a super majority of lawmakers who do want to get basic things done in government, but because of the way that the parties react right now, and and particularly the Republican Party in this case, is they try to get things done solely with Republican votes, and it's just not working. Mike Johnson found that out this week again. This idea that there is a significant cross-section in the middle, whether that middle is in Congress and you know some combination of Democrats or Republicans, or whether that middle is the 
electorate and whether that creates an opportunity for a third party candidate, a topic that we might be able to get into today, a little bit later in this conversation, if we're able to get there. There's this idea that, wait, there's all this momentum for that type of activity. But as you just pointed out, the mechanics around, in this case, making legislation, in the other case, electing a president, maybe you could argue that in terms of Congress, it's not the literal mechanics, but it's the emotional mechanics. It's the political mechanics are preventing it from happening. I found myself wondering too. So Mike Johnson, as you noted, took the exact same tack basically the same tack, as Kevin McCarthy. And he passed a spending bill that required Democrats to help bail him out. And he's now gotten bailed out by Republicans. They're not calling for his head the way they did for McCarthy. And some of the thinking is, oh, well, you know, this is perhaps his honeymoon period, or, well, he's built up different types of credibility with the hard right, and they're willing to cut him a break on this because he's built up all this credibility. And then another line of thinking, this just proves the lie. And that was all just nonsense about the reasons that the hard right gave of why they wanted to get rid of McCarthy. It had nothing to do with that spending bill. And it had everything to do with a number, with eight of them, I guess, and in particular one, Matt Gates, just not liking the guy and having reasons to get rid of him. The part that just makes no sense at all is if the worst thing that can happen to a speaker and to a Republican party broadly, not necessarily members of the hard right, I don't think, but certainly generally speaking, the Republican party is that government gets shut down. Over the last couple of decades, the party that takes responsibility or gets responsibility for shutting down the government ends up getting hurt, usually, electorally. If that's the case, why did he just set up more opportunities for government to get shut down? You know, there was the potential in October. Now there was the potential in November. Now we'll have the potential in January. Now we'll have the potential again in February. Why would you go that route? Yeah, no, everyone's kind of scratching their head because it doesn't really make that much sense. And even though Republicans gave him a pass this week, there was indications less than 24 hours later that that's not going to last that long because the very day after they passed that bill to avert the shutdown, there were about 20 or so conservative Republicans joined with Democrats to vote against a rule to allow one of the funding bills to come to the floor. This was a funding bill funding the Department of Commerce and the Department of Justice, and that killed the bill right there. These conservatives that joined with Democrats, because Democrats, the opposition party almost always votes against the rule. That's pretty much up to the Republican majority to pass the rule and then to bring the debate to the floor. But in this case, Republicans joined with Democrats to kill that rule, which means they didn't even want the bill to be debated on the House floor. They just wanted to kill it. That was a massive setback for Mike Johnson. So if he thought he got a pass the day before, that was a big setback to Johnson. It mirrors the tactics that conservatives used against Kevin McCarthy, where they really just tried to gum up the operations of the House. It was actually interesting that Representative Chip Roy from Texas, who's one of these conservatives who is starting to make Mike Johnson's life a little bit more difficult, just as he was making Kevin McCarthy's life difficult. He suggested to CNN that Mike Johnson already has two strikes against him. And you and I, being baseball fans, know if he gets a third strike, he's out. 
baseball's changing so many rules these days. At this point, there could be four or five outs in an inning, but baseball, old rules, yes, three strikes and you're out. We're old school here, Chris. Let's just assume we're playing by the old school baseball rules and that three strikes aren't out. Okay. Well, Chip Roy was suggesting to Johnson through CNN that if he makes one more misstep, that someone's going to bring a motion to vacate against Johnson. So Mike Johnson probably shouldn't get too comfortable in that speaker's chair. What does this mean then for legislation? I mean, one of the things that you and I try to do in this conversation in this podcast is really look at the ramifications of political actions and what are the politics behind various decisions, because sometimes there are legal reasons, sometimes there are reasons of physics, but we're here to talk about the reasons of politics. So a ramification is maybe they'll take a motion to vacate, maybe we'll have a roulette reel, can we find a speaker today contest again. But are there outcomes that concern you? Are there outcomes that become really meaningful to people in their everyday lives? What's the outcome of this type of thing? Well, it means that the House is effectively neutered, is is effectively powerless, unable to carry out its most basic functions. If it continues to run the way that it's been running under Republicans, it will certainly live up to its reputation of being the least productive session of Congress since the Great Depression. They won't be able to get these rules passed to bring legislation to the floor. And what does that practically mean? It means that the Senate is really going to be in charge here, that the Senate will pass the substantive bills, the bills that need to get passed, such as those funding our government, and they're going to jam them down the House's throat. So that doesn't necessarily make a lot of members of Congress very happy, very excited. The House of Representatives is supposed to be the most representative of the two branches of Congress, and the Senate will be in charge here. So it'll be up to Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell to come to agreement on legislation. And and essentially, if it's crucial, such as funding the government, the House will just have to take it up and swallow it as the Senate has put it up. Or they can obviously, in the terms of spending bills, they can choose to shut down the government. But it does seem that if anything good has come out of this mess in the House of Representatives that we've witnessed over the last year, it's that most lawmakers realize that government shutdowns are bad, that they don't win by shutting down the government, and that voters don't like it. That will impact them in the next election. And so when you've got your majority on a razor thin margin you know, of five members, and one of those members may get expelled right after they come back from Thanksgiving recess, when the margin is that small and a few seats here or there can win control of the House of Representatives in November of 2024, it matters what voters think about your ability to get things done and your ability to actually pass legislation that's meaningful. And then the other thing that actually is probably most interesting to me, because I have spent a lot of time praising Nancy Pelosi, is that Nancy Pelosi, with the same majority, she ran one of the most productive Congresses in our lifetime, really probably as productive as any Congress since Linda Johnson's Great Society. So it really does matter who is in charge. And just as Kevin McCarthy was no Nancy Pelosi, Mike Johnson's quickly finding out that he's not either. You know, it's a really deep political podcast when you're working both Herbert Hoover and LBJ into the same conversation. And it's about Congress. Like, that's pretty thoughtful stuff. So, Chris, if Robert Caro ever finishes his fifth volume of the Lyndon Johnson series, we may just expand that episode of Trial Balloon to probably be five hours. And we'll just talk about that book because you and I both are, we've been waiting for it for years. We've been waiting for it for a lot of years. You know my theory. I think it's done. 
I think he's got it done and he's just waiting for the right time for him. I hope you're right. I would hate to be in a situation where they have a 90% done volume and somebody has to finish it for him after his death. I think he has it done. One more thought on the house. We just went through the substance of why this matters. We talked about shutdowns. We talked about the legislation that does not get passed. We talked about the practical component, which is that the Senate now stands to really take the lead, in your words, jam the legislation down the House's throat. At the same time, there is just the wackiness is the most polite word I can think of. You know, the George Santos stuff and the ethics report, Kevin McCarthy, the the elbowing, the kidney punch. Marjorie Taylor Greene calling a male member of the House of Representatives the P-word, I believe. Every day it's something else. I mean, who knows what uh, Boebert has done in the last 24 hours. There's kind of always something. It's occurring to me that on the one hand, you and I had a bit of a conversation about the ethics report on Santos, and I'm kind of less moved by it. Like, I kind of feel like, what did we think was going on? You know, we're shocked to find out there's gambling. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, who would ever think that a member of Congress would allegedly take campaign funds and spend them on an OnlyFans account? Like, at first blush, that seems crazy. And at second blush, it's like, yeah, I mean, at this point, anything could happen. And, you know, we've gotten so jaded that nothing surprises anymore. And so, on the one hand, I'm tempted to dismiss a lot of that as just ridiculousness. And this other theme that you and I have been talking about the lack of serious people in government these days and how frustrating and problematic that is. But now it kind of occurs to me as you're talking about legislation and the productivity and the stuff that really matters. And that is stuff that it's hard to get people to pay attention to. It's hard to get people to really focus on why that stuff matters. And so maybe the nonsense serves as symptomatic evidence of the problematic disease underlying. Maybe those are symptoms. If you don't have that underlying freeze of progress and underlying issues, then you don't have those surface symptoms. And so, you know, maybe MTG, maybe McCarthy and the kidney punch, maybe George Santos, maybe on some level I'm being too dismissive. Maybe, you know, that silliness is helpful because that silliness doesn't occur, and silliness is in quotes, it's obviously much worse than that, doesn't occur unless there's a real problem underneath. I think that's true. And I think that the fact that the House has been in session for something like 10 straight weeks before they were taking this break for Thanksgiving. They've been around each other for a long time. The Republican caucus has been stuck in rooms as they were trying to find a speaker for hours and hours at a time. And the bottom line is, I think they're finding that they don't really like a lot of their colleagues and that it's coming out in all sorts of interesting ways here, including some violent ways. But the reason that George Santos, that story is so important is that in the entire history of this country, there have been only five members of the House who have been expelled. And there have been three attempts to expel George Santos so far. But it seems that this ethics report, the reason why it's significant now is that that chairman of the House Ethics Committee, who's a Republican, has said he will introduce a resolution as soon as he can to expel George Santos. 
it seems like the momentum has finally shifted. Once the ethics committee has found, as the, in their words, substantial lawbreaking by George Santos, which obviously the fact that he was using campaign money on an OnlyFans account or using money for personal expenses, none of that really surprises us. After all, this is a guy who made up his entire identity. But the fact that Republicans have kept this guy in Congress for the last 11 months, knowing much of what we already know, shows you how important his vote is. When you only have a small majority, as the Republicans do, they needed George Santos's vote, and he voted loyally as a Republican. If he is expelled, that means his seat is vacant until a special election is held. And it would seem at this point, even though his district is competitive, it would seem unlikely that another Republican would get elected to that seat. And so that would be a Democratic pickup. So it would be an empty seat for now, which is a vote they wouldn't have. And then it would be actually a Democratic vote, really the worst thing for the Republican majority who already doesn't have enough margin to pass legislation. So that's why I think it's really important. You know, he's a clown and he's a clown like a lot of these other guys are clowns, but he is a vote. And if that vote is missing, it just makes Mike Johnson's job that much harder. Okay. Yes, I agree with that. Losing a vote is a very, very big deal. My only point is, you know, that you touched on really like that's a real shock that the guy who made up almost literally everything about himself and got elected somehow based off of that. The fact that it then supposedly, according to this report, turns out that he also played shenanigans with the finances. I mean, who saw that coming? Well, you know, the other news about George Santos that came out with this ethics report is that he said that he was no longer going to run for re-election, which is something that he said as early as last week, that even if he was expelled from Congress, that he would continue to run. Even if he was convicted, he would continue to run for re-election. And now he's finally said he wasn't. Of course, that leads you to the speculation that uh, some of the political wire commenters have engaged in, which is, well, all he has to do is change his name and run again, and nobody will know it's him. That's funny. <laughs> I didn't know that people were saying that. That was what I was just going to say to you. George Santos might not be running, but George Santa Domingos. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, we'll see what happens in Long Island, but you know who is running and who is rising is Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley moves into second in New Hampshire. A new CNN poll in New Hampshire finds Donald Trump leading the Republican primary field with 42%, followed by Nikki Haley at 20%, Chris Christie at 14%, Ron DeSantis at 9%, Vivek Ramaswamy at 8 and no other candidate holding more than 2% support. Haley's support jumped eight percentage points from the last CNN UNH poll, University of New Hampshire poll in September, with Ramaswamy dipping five points in support for Trump, Christie, and DeSantis remaining relatively steady. Meanwhile, Wall Street mega donors warmed to Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley's strong performances in the Republican presidential debates have won over several of the party's big donors and intrigued other Wall Street figures this week. The Financial Times reports she was at a small meet and greet breakfast with financiers like BlackRock chief executive Larry Fink and an evening fundraiser co-hosted by former Goldman Sachs president Gary Cohn, a bunch of other big money donors are named there as well. So she's starting to rake in the money more, I guess. I think I saw something else earlier this week that Tim Scott's financial person or some Tim Scott donors are now going to Nikki Haley. I saw, I believe, a Mitt Romney finance person is going over to Nikki Haley. 
So she's getting more money. She's now rising to 20% in New Hampshire. And before you just dismiss this whole line of topic out of hand by pointing out that 42% is still twice as much as 20% in New Hampshire, come on now, Tegan, doesn't this make a difference? Chris, you never surprised me with your grasp of mathematics. So that is very true. It is hard, actually, when news like this comes up for me to figure out what the headline should be on a post about a poll like this. Should it be that Nikki Haley is surging in the Republican primary, which when you look at her numbers, she absolutely is. And she's clearly leaving Ron DeSantis in the dust. And really no surprise if you watch the Republican debates, she's clearly been the best performer. And that seems to be resonating with uh, Republican voters. But the reality is, is it's not enough of them. And that Donald Trump is still crushing the field by these polls. He's crushing the field. But there is, I believe, a sense, and maybe this segues as well, you know, if you would argue that Nikki Haley is doing well, but is not going to be president in 2024, as long as we're talking about people who aren't going to be president in the next election cycle, that makes me think about Joe Manchin. Maybe what the rise of Nikki Haley is showing, though, is that, first of all, there's a lot of time left. And if she's growing in terms of her numbers and consolidating on the Republican side, it could argue for the possibility of that middle lane. Is there any way in which Joe Manchin makes sense, given what we're seeing regarding Haley's poll numbers? Or is a third-party candidacy just not something that happens in America? I think it's not something that happens in America. I mean, you could go back to Teddy Roosevelt, you can go to George Wallace, you can go to Ross Perot, Strom Thurmond, and now maybe we'll have Joe Manchin as a more prominent third party candidate. I don't think Joe Manchin will be president, just as none of the previous ones became president. And it's even worse this time because at least Teddy Roosevelt and George Wallace actually won electoral votes. It's highly unlikely that Joe Manchin running on no labels would be able to win some electoral votes. But when I wrote a piece earlier this week speculating that I thought actually it was probably likely that Manchin would run, and that was driven by just what we know about Manchin. There's not a camera in America that he doesn't like to be in front of. And the fact that he's also got more than $11 million sitting in his campaign account that could help launch a presidential bid. And he's got a bunch of disaffected Democrats and Republicans looking for someone to vote for whose names are not Joe Biden or Donald Trump. All of that kind of led me to think that I think it's more likely than not that Joe Manchin would run for president under the no labels banner. When I wrote that, I actually got an enormous amount of interesting feedback from readers, including from some who were intimately involved in the group's planning for 2024. What I found most interesting was that their speculation in early 2021 Right after the presidential election, they began thinking about a third party candidacy. And the reason they were doing that is that they did not think that Joe Biden was going to run for president. They thought the 2024 race was going to be a race between Donald Trump, Kamala Harris, and a no labels candidate. And according to people who were in these discussions, that no labels candidate, they always assumed would be Joe Manchin, which I find pretty interesting. They were just convinced that Biden wasn't going to run. And if he didn't run, Nancy Jacobson, the head of No Labels, I'm told, believes that Kamala Harris is a very far left candidate and that she's as bad as Donald Trump is. And so that is what kind of sustains No Labels throughout this period. Obviously, what we know now is that Joe Biden is running for reelection and that it's a very different thing. Even Joe Manchin this week has said, 
he could never bring himself to vote for Donald Trump. And he thinks that Donald Trump will destroy the democracy in the United States. And so it does leave you wondering, what is No Labels going to do now, particularly if the candidate that they had always targeted in Joe Manchin is saying that if Donald Trump gets elected, he will destroy democracy? We're in a really difficult situation here. No Labels is in a difficult situation in terms of what their messaging is supposed to be. Are they more interested in spending some of this donor money that they've raised for a third party candidate? Or do they think they can actually have an impact? And I know, again, from readers who know that the thinking at No Labels was at first Nancy Jacobson and her team thought that a No Labels candidate could win the 270 electoral votes needed in that matchup with Kamala Harris and Donald Trump. But that they slowly started to come off that thinking that if only they could get some electoral votes, then they would force what would be a contingent election, meaning that ultimately the state delegations in the House of Representatives would end up choosing the president, or that the no labels candidate could control some of these electoral votes and essentially trade them to another one of the candidates before they all convene to cast their votes. I found that really fascinating, that it was a power move, in effect, by no labels to see if they could impact who was going to be president. One wonders, is it this power move that they've speculated about for almost three years? Is that what's driving this? Or is it really just a genuine belief that someone like Joe Manchin would be the best president? It's unclear to me. You know, when you are talking about the triple bank shot that ends with a brokered convention, if that's your strategy, that's the political junky dream. That feels perhaps not as silly as spending campaign funds on OnlyFans or kidney punching a colleague, but it does seem like it's in the political junky dream sphere. Well, Chris, don't ruin it for readers that we're going to have a brokered convention episode next summer. So, yeah, Of course we will. Of course we will. And I don't know if you saw Joe Manchin the other night interviewed by Caitlin Collins on CNN. This is trial balloon time for Joe Manchin. He is putting it out there about running for president. These next months, that decision is going to come down, unless perhaps he's already made the decision. See, we'll see how this plays out. Obviously, he loves to be in the center of speculation. We've seen that through much of President Biden's term. He loves to be the guy that everyone's talking about. And he can probably play this out for another six or seven months before he has to say, no, 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 I'm not running. Or perhaps he does run. And then all of a sudden, we start talking on trial balloon about how a third party candidate as strong as Joe Manchin is going to impact some of these battleground states. But boy, oh boy, that's going to be really interesting to see how the analysis of each of these battleground states goes, because um, these states are all very, very close right now. And it's very clear that one third party candidate, we may have two or three third party candidates who draw from different parts of the electorate. And it's going to get very, very complicated. I, I think no matter what you think about early prognostication about the election, this is going to be a really interesting election if you get into that thing. We do get into that thing. Uh, that's kind of one of the main topics, along with one of our other topics, which is while baseball has not changed the rule of how many strikes makes an out, there uh, is breaking news as you and I are having this conversation. There is now a Major League Baseball team in Las Vegas. The Oakland wow. A's have uh, officially been approved. So 
Goodbye, Oakland. Hello, Las Vegas. We all knew it was going to happen, but that is pretty interesting that Oakland will no longer have a baseball team. Somebody must want those Nevada electoral votes. Talk to you next week, Tegan. Talk to you, Chris. Bye. Bye.